Good evening and thank you for joining us for the KISU broadcast of the City Club of Idaho Falls. Tonight, the forum topic, Salmon and Steelhead, Lost Cause or Reason for Hope. The presentation was given by Mark Davidson, Director of Conservation Initiatives for the National Conservancy. This forum was held on June 7th. The following audio is supplemented by slides available on our website, KISU.org. Just look for our homepage post. The audio and slide files are also available at ifcityclub.com. Click on Forums and Archives. Moderating this forum is Idaho Falls City Club founder, Dr. David Adler. Greetings, everyone. Very happy that you could join us today for some insights and broad discussion about issues that matter a great deal to Idahoans as we discuss the efforts to uh, restore salmon and steelhead uh, runs and to preserve those very important aspects of the Idaho economy and uh, something of interest to uh, sportsmen everywhere. Uh, our speaker today is, um, is an old friend and uh, certainly a very important person in the world of Idaho conservation. Mark Davidson joins us today, and uh, he has worked in the world of Idaho conservation for more than 17 years through the Nature Conservancy and Trout Unlimited. Mark grew up in southern Idaho working on family farms and uh, worked as well as a wildland firefighter for the Bureau of Land Management before he enrolled in Idaho, at Idaho State University and earned a degree in biology. Let's hear it for the Bengals. Mark began his, he, Mark began his career in conservation uh, working at the Silver Creek Preserve, which you may know is the flagship preserve and also a world-renowned trout fishery uh, of the Idaho chapter of the Nature Conservancy. Since then, he has led salmon and steelhead uh, recovery efforts uh, in the upper salmon watership, uh, watershed, the upper salmon watershed in the central region of Idaho on behalf of the Nature Conservancy. Uh, he's been very successful. Uh, he would be far too modest to acknowledge it, but he has facilitated uh, the protection of 25,000 acres of land and the reconnection of six very important tributaries to the Upper Salmon watershed uh, area. Uh, Mark is currently the Director of Conservation Initiatives for the Nature Conservancy. And I might add on a personal note, uh, he is married to Jenny Emery Davidson, who is the uh, acclaimed director of the Community Library in Ketchum, uh, chair of the board of the Idaho Humanities Council, which, as Jerry mentioned, is an ongoing uh, supporter of the City Club of Idaho Falls. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm City Club welcome to Mark Davidson. Thanks for that very generous introduction. Um, I just want to say thank you to the Idaho City Club for inviting me to talk about a topic that I feel um, very invested in. It's been a very, um, I would say, um, has shaped a lot of my perspective on conservation, a lot of shaped my perspective on our state, and it is something that is very important to me personally. Um, I also want to recognize a couple of folks before I get started. 
Amy Lentz is uh, one of our Board of Trustees for the Nature Conservancy currently. Uh, Mr. Jerry Scheid was a former board member of the Nature Conservancy, and as you may or may not know, Marilyn Manguba is a Nature Conservancy employee as well. So a lot of the work that I did and was successful with was frankly because of people like Marilyn, to be honest. I mean, I, I tend to be the one out front waving my arms around and you know shouting and yelling, but it's people like Marilyn that really do most of the hard work. Um, The other thing I want to say is, uh, before I came down to Idaho Falls, I was in Salmon just this week, and I was asking people in Salmon, um, how I'm going to give this presentation in Idaho Falls, and they, you know, people I work with on Salmon still had issues, and, and they were like, well, where, where are you giving this presentation? And I said, at the Idaho Falls City Club. And I'll tell you what, people of Salmon, Idaho, think that the Idaho Falls City Club is where the power lies in this city, so just so you know. <laughs> Somehow you got them fooled, I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. I got, a whole, I got a range of responses. There was a lot of responses about um, uh, tell them not to come up here. Uh, there's no elk or, or, or antelope or deer to hunt up here. Um, there was really no helpful comments on what to talk about related to the topic at hand. <laughs> So it was, uh, unfortunately, it didn't give me much uh, help. Um, so the <laughs> it's kind of like what we say to Californians, and as, uh, no offense to the Californians in the room. If you're from Idaho, you don't want anybody to show up to Idaho. You want them to stay out. But that's not the world we live in. Um, I uh, want to just give a brief overview of the Nature Conservancy before I dive into this topic. Nature Conservancy is a global organization. We work in all 50 states and about 44 countries. Our mission is to protect the lands and waters on which all life depends. The Idaho chapter, as David alluded to, really began its efforts at Silver Creek, and that's how we really started as an organization, protecting special places, um, a lot of times for a rare plant species or a fishery or a wildlife or whatever it might be, but it was really about like keeping, kind of keeping people out of the equation. And as the Nature Conservancy has evolved over time, we've really tried to wrestle with and grapple with how to incorporate people more squarely into our work, because frankly, that's what it is really all about. And I think the work that we've done in Idaho and salmon and, and still had recovery issues has largely been about people. It's been about the fishery, but it's, it's really driven by the, the people involved. So as, as many of you may know, salmon and steelhead, there aren't many topics in conservation. Well, other than wolves, evidently, I heard about a talk you guys had not too, like last year, whatever that was, where wolves were, was the featured topic. Um, salmon and steelhead does have kind of a range of emotions that come with it. Um, the other thing that's interesting about salmon and steelhead, people don't really think about it all the time, unless you're really like, hey, I'm going to plan my fishing trip and I want to go catch that big B-run salmon up in the clear water, or I want to go spend the time up in the salmon area and chase after those, those steelhead when they make their way in, or maybe even you might go fishing for a Chinook salmon. But a lot of people, and part, part of the issue around salmon and steelhead is we kind of are disconnected from it. We can order it in a restaurant. We sometimes buy it at the market when prices reach something less than, I don't know, our metric seems to be around 8 to $10 a pound. Um, then it kind of starts to enter into your consciousness. 
And I think that that's something that we're really have not really done a good, uh, we've done a disservice in conservation by not trying to elevate this topic more in a, in a more constructive way. A lot of times the issue gets talked about in the very contentious, um, we need to do, it's either this or it's either this, and there's not a whole lot of room in between. And hopefully what I can do today is, show, is talk about what the broad world of salmon conservation looks like, what the context is, and it's kind of interesting to think about what it was pre-1800s and kind of where we've come. It's a pretty precipitous slide, but at the same time, I feel like many challenges we faced in this country, we collectively have always figured out ways to solve them. But this is where the people aspect of this topic really is, is hugely important. My first interaction with salmon and steelhead was my first real interaction professionally was around 2003 or 4 when I first started with uh, working in the upper salmon landscape for the Nature Conservancy. And I remember, like I'd heard stories about people saying, oh, salmon still had, you used to go up to Redfish Lake, you'd see sockeye salmon going there, you'd walk across their backs. The, the, the name of Redfish Lake is named such because of there were so many redfish swimming around in it. Um, and so I had these images in my head, and I had read something uh, uh, historical uh, um, when I, I read um, Lewis and Clark's, some Lewis and Clark's, it's not their journals, uh, David Ambrose's book, and it's slipped in my mind. But there was some mention of salmon in that book, and then there's some other trappers and people who reference salmon. And what they reference is just like this splashing and swimming all over, and even some of the ranching folks that I've worked with, uh, uh, one of the ranch families we work with in the Upper Salmon, the O'Neill family, they, they are like 18th generation ranch family. They've been up there since um, white folks first got into um, Idaho, basically. And Ted O'Neill would talk about, yeah, we'd go out in the ditch and we would spear them with pitchforks in between hang, and we would eat them, and they were everywhere. They'd keep you up at night, and it stunk so bad you couldn't even stand it. And I'm thinking, holy mackerel, like this wasn't that long ago. And so I had like these images in my head of what, what I was going to be encountering and, and what we were going to be working toward. And I had this dream, and in that dream it was like fish everywhere. It was like, it was like I, had, I had thought about it for so long before I actually started to engage in the landscape. And I kind of imagine it looks something like this, but on a broad scale, just fish, so many fish they didn't know where to go. So that, that was kind of the, the backdrop of what I was thinking about and what I was hoping we could do with salmon and steelhead restoration. And then I started to work in the landscape and started to learn more about the issue. And the reality is, it's not quite that. So I want to set the stage a little bit about the historical context. And when I talk about historical context, this is really 1800s. We don't have a lot of good information about really what was the numbers of fish that were here. The Nez Perce tribe, who's probably done the most work on trying to understand the full context of what, in particular, Chinook salmon. And when you talk about salmon and steelhead, I kind of, I'll probably go back and forth between saying salmon, or, or maybe just salmon, maybe just steelhead, but they're really interchangeable. Anatomous fish is the term that you might use when you're describing these critters. Um, but they all exhibit very similar life, life history traits, and I'll talk about that here in a second. Um, at one point in time, salmon and steelhead in our state um, were all the way from the Clearwater region, all the way in North Idaho, to Twin Falls, and everywhere in between, pretty much. So we had these huge numbers of fish, and they occupied almost 50, 60, 70% of our state. Idaho is a salmon state. 
We don't always think of ourselves as that, but we really are, even today. And what you see in this map, and I'll just briefly touch on this, there's the full colored picture is where salmon, the extent of where salmon and steelhead historically were. The green portion of this map, that's where we have salmon and steelhead coming to today. Everything else has been blocked by some kind of alteration to the river. Generally speaking, that's dams, just to put a point on it. And that's where you get a lot of controversy, is around the hydro system. At one point in time, we had, if you were to stand on the banks of the Salmon River, right outside of Salmon, Idaho, imagine yourself being there in the 1800s, <clears throat> early 1800s, you might see 43,000 Chinook salmon or king salmons making their way to salmon, and at the confluence of the Lemhi River, they turn south, those 43,000 adult fish. Everything from two feet to four feet in length. I mean, just a massive amount of fish. These fish would have gone up the river, and they would have spawned almost the entire length of the river. They would have laid anywhere from millions of eggs. And then you would have had millions of little fish emerge from that. So these rivers, just the Lemhi alone, the Lemhi River would have had millions of fish in it at any given time. Everything from a small one to a large one. Some fish would stay there for a, a summer and move out with the next year's flow. Some fish might overwinter and go out later. They just would always kind of have salmon and steelhead swimming around in these rivers throughout the, the entire year. So the, the proliferation of fish in these systems that would travel upwards of 900 miles, a mile up in elevation, coming to these places in Idaho to essentially continue their, their, their lives. And the way the salmon and steelhead do it is it's a numbers game for them. They just produce a lot of young. And, and that's partly because of different environmental changes that would have happened just naturally. Um, and so that's why you had such huge numbers of these fish. So as a result of having all these fish, at one point in time, we were estimate that there would have been upwards of 671,000 Chinook salmon, just Chinook salmon. If you were to combine that with steelhead and sockeye salmon, the numbers would have been millions of adults. I'm not just talking juveniles. It would have been billions of juvenile fish in these rivers. Salmon still had, have had important cultural and spiritual significance for as, as long as people have been roaming these areas. There have been tribes from the Shoshone-Bannock, Nez Perce tribes, Lemhi tribes, and others all the way from Idaho to the mouth of the Columbia River that relied on these fish, not only for their culture, spiritual, but they sustenance and they traded with, and they traded fish and they fish, salmon and steelhead were moving out beyond the boundaries of where we currently see them. Hugely important for the tribes. And then as settlers started to move into the area, salmon and steelhead were important to them too. I mean, that, just an important protein source for anybody living at those times. There's documented records of uh, the Mormon missionaries at Fort Lemhi, which if you're going to Salmon from here, uh, about halfway between Ledore and Salmon, there was an old fort. Um, and the missionaries at that fort, or the Mormons who were there, they were shipping wagon loads of fish to Salt Lake. So you had, this is early times, this is like, you know, early 1800s mid-1800s, and this is the proliferation of fish that are out there, and they're just getting exploited. And of course, we didn't have a lot of people using them, but the point I'm trying to make is there was 
people relying on these fish for their livelihoods and, and for their sustenance. As our state grew, more and more people came into our state, come to where we are today. I just want to briefly, you know, have, there's not really look at any of the details. There's just two lines that I want you to really focus on, the orange line and the blue line. This is what happens when you have the collision of humans and salmon. The more we've exploited our resources, which is the blue line, going from left to right, everything from mining to development to hydropower development, everything, and I'm not trying to make a judgment on those choices we made, those were societal choices. We needed to do that. We are here today because we did that. We won wars because we did this. So I don't want to, under, I don't want to downplay the fact that we're making a judgment on what happened in history. It's just what we chose to do as a society. But as we did that, some of the unintended consequences were we had precipitous drops. And, and this, these are, day, these are, these are uh, commercial harvest records that were taken at the mouth of the Columbia River. So the pounds of fish caught went down to nearly nothing as our exploitation of resources went up. So that's the history of it. What I want to focus on, oh, let me, before I go on, right now today, I want to give you a little bit of a current snapshot. <clears throat> right now today, and before, sorry, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, our numbers of fish fluctuate on a year-to-year -year basis for a whole host of reasons. And I'm happy to answer questions about that. As I was preparing for this talk, I was trying to narrow it into something that would be useful. And I literally, for the past, well, I don't remember when you extended the invitation, but for the past month, I was going through all of the information that I've collected over the years on salmon and I've been, I mean, I've talked to experts all the time. I'm involved in a lot of different conversations. There is so much information, and there are so many challenges that these fish face that I started to get a little bit depressed again about, oh my gosh, can we really get there? Um, but I, 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 I think the story of salmon steelhead is, just, uh, is really a story of hope. And the 10-year averages of our fisheries today, again, this, these numbers are fluctuating. Right now, it's really not good. There's not a lot of fish in coming back to Idaho right now. But that's for a whole variety of reasons that we don't have a lot of control over directly. Ocean conditions passage problems, temperature issues, climate change is affecting all this. So I'm not, that's another one I'm not going to really go into. Um, we can talk about it in the question and answer if you, if you want. Our numbers today for steelhead, we have a total of, on a 10-year average, a total of 158,000 fish returning to Idaho. Of those 158,000, 30,000 are wild fish. So in other words, fish that don't go through a hatchery, they go to their native spawning grounds, spawn and die and do their thing. And we have 128,000 steelhead. Sockeye salmon is a little bit more of a tough one. 675 fish make their way back to Idaho. 175 of those are wild fish. 500 of those are hatchery fish. Sockeye is a, is a species that has been more, I think, probably the most impacted by the hydro system than are steelhead and Chinook. Chinook salmon, or king salmon, are roughly at 73,000 total, 17,000 wild fish, and 56,000 hatchery fish. 
For a conservation perspective, we focus, and, and recovery of the species, we focus on the wild numbers. That's going to be the target that we're trying to hit. Hatchery goals are, are set for a whole variety of reasons, and those reasons have changed over time because of different pressures from different social forces, so to speak. What led to all this is what we call in the salmon world the four H's. Harvest, habitat, hydro, and I almost said habitat again, and hatcheries. So each one of those four pieces of the equation, and there are other things, but you could essentially encapsulate all the challenges around salmon and steelhead in those four items because they affect every part of that salmon and steelhead's life history, from where they spawn to going out to where they rear, to where they overwinter, to when they go out to the ocean, and the journey to the ocean, and when they're in the ocean, and when they come back, they face a whole new set of challenges. But they're encapsulated by those four things. I'm not going to go into the details of that, because what I really want to try to impart to you today is the story of hope. And it's because we have people who are working on it, and people who are committed to it. So I'm going to tell you four stories. I'll start with this family. <clears throat> this is the Elzinga family. And I, I get a little emotional every time I talk about them, because they've, they've been really important to me. Um, when I started in 2003, working up there, I went around with a couple of agency biologists, and they're like, I'm, I'm telling them from the nation, like, where, do you, where should we work? What can we do? And we were on a, soil, a Custer Soil and Water Conservation District tour. And on that conservation district tour, I had Lenore Barrett, if you remember her. She was sitting behind me. Um, I had, I would say, some of the crustier ranchers I've ever encountered sitting in front of me. Um, who Some of those people ended up, they're more crusty than you, Jerry. <laughs> and then some of those folks became, ended up becoming my friends. And I'm sitting there as the Nature Conservancy guy. I had two strikes already against me. Nature Conservancy and I live in Sun Valley. So that's like, oh my gosh, who is this person? Um, so I asked Tom Curette, who's I, incidentally from Idaho Falls. Tom, I say to Tom, Tom, where do I, what do I do? We're on this bridge right in the middle of the Pacimaroy Valley. And if you haven't been there, don't go. It's not worth going to the Pacimaroy. Um, one of the most beautiful places in the state, in my opinion. Um, we're sitting on the bridge on Dalton Lane. And of course, all the road names are named after the people who lived there for generations. And we're standing on the, this ranch, on either side of this bridge. And Tom Curette says to me, well, if you want to do something important, buy this ranch. So come to find out that ranch is where, at the time, roughly 80, 70, 80% of the Chinook salmon spawning was on that one place. That's how little room they had to go. And as we got into this, I'm like, okay, this is what we're going to do in the Nature Conservancy. We're going to buy this ranch. So we go out and buy this ranch. Um, and, you know, we probably paid too much. I think that's been the story of my career. As some in this room might be able to attest or maybe dispute. Um, <laughs> one of the things we had to do with this ranch is we didn't want to own it. I had, I had met with the Custer County Commissioners and the Lemhi County Commissioners. And if you hadn't gone to a Custer County Commission meeting, it's worth the price of admission. <laughs> it's, it's grassroots government at its best. Um, and I was standing there talking to him, and, and uh, I'll never forget 
Wayne Butts, Lynn Hensey, and Cliff Hansen um, pretty much raked me over the coals in a fairly nice way. And they said, if you end up owning that piece of property, you will never work here again. And so I'm like, that's fair. We're gonna, that wasn't our intent. So we go off to try and figure out, well, what are we gonna do with this ranch? We gotta find somebody who's gonna buy it. And we want it to be a rancher. I don't wanna have some, you know, out of, well, I don't wanna say out of state person. But I, well, I, there was a certain kind of person I was looking for to buy this ranch. And it was really important that we did this, I thought. And that's a pretty, if you, any of you know ranching, it's, it's a, it can be a tough business. And in particular, if land values are high, it's not an easy thing to, to, to do if you're really relying on cash flow and cattle prices fluctuate all over the place. So I'm trying to find a buyer, and I come across this guy, the, the guy in the red shirt, Glenn Elzinga. The first time I met him, he, he calls me and he says, hey, I had given a presentation in Salmon about conservation easements. And he's like, hey, I, I, you know, I own this small ranch in Tendoy, and I ranch from Ledore all the way to North Fork. And if you know that, that's a long ways to go from Ledore to North Fork, and you're running you know, 250 mama cows, and it's a, that's a lot of work. And he spread on these 20, 30 acre parcels all over the place. And he's like, I need to consolidate this operation. I need to, I need to find a place where I can kind of have the, run the ranch, run our business. They have a online business. They direct market all their beef. They're really innovative folks. And I'm fired up about this guy. And it so happens that his wife is a PhD ecologist. And I'm like, wow, I, we just struck gold here. Like we got progressive rancher, PhD ecologist. She's gonna be really helpful to teach me about rangeland stuff, which I didn't know very much about at the time. So I'm fired up about this family, and then I get to meet their, they got seven girls. This, is, this picture was actually taken when I first started working with them. This was in 2004, so the kids are all older now. Um, and I go to meet Glenn on the, on the ranch that we bought, and Glenn is driving a Toyota Tercel, and I don't know if you know what those cars look like, but they're not big, and Glenn is 6'4", 6'5", classic beanpole type guy, arms and legs, unfolds himself out of this car, and he proceeds to tell me what he wants to do. He's like got this big vision for what he's trying to accomplish. And so we go through our whole buyer process, and he ends up being the one we choose. But Glenn and his family and his wife were committed not just to their business, they're committed to the well-being of the landscape. Did I do that? No. Oh. Um, and that the way that they look at the landscape and the way that they look at the fish, they see the fish as an asset to their ranch. They don't see the fish as a, something they need to fight against. They see it as something that actually adds value to what they do, not just from a spiritual perspective, like that's how he would say it, but it's also something that, frankly, if you look at the land value, it, it, it increases the value of your own property. Maybe it gives you more things you can do. So he looked at it from a very much a, the salmon and steelhead matter. They matter to me just in principle. And that's a story of a person who is making a living in a place that is not necessarily conducive to making a living if you're just starting a new business, in a ranching business. And that's the kind of person in the ranching world that you're starting to see more and more of working around salmon and steelhead. And they're successful today. They're, they're growing their business. They're, we're still working with them. We're hiring people to work on rangelands. They've got, I think they've got 10 staff on their ranch now, and it's just been a, it's been a success story. And it's been bumpy, but it's been a success story. The next story I want to tell is about a guy named Boyd Foster. <clears throat> Boyd Foster owns a um, excavation company out of Ledore. Uh, 
If you don't know lead ore, it's, I'm not sure what the equivalent would be down here, but it's, it's, like, it's like 60 people live in lead ore. It's not very big. You might have gone through it and blinked and missed it. Um, Boyd Foster was a, you know, he chased whatever business he could get. Roads, work at the mine site, he, anything. He wasn't somebody when we first met him, and he was working, he was paired up with somebody else at the time. When I first met him, he wasn't somebody that was, uh, hey, what kind of conservation work do you guys got going on? He was fairly skeptical of us when we, when we first started working with him and hired him to do some restoration projects. This picture was taken in the Yankee, uh, actually, though, no, this, this one was in the Yankee Fork, but the story with Boyd is not just the Yankee Fork. He's, he's got his, he's in one of those excavators, I don't know which one, but he's got a crew of people and excavators that a big chunk of their business relies on the work that we do to improve habitat for salmon and steelhead. Now, I'm not saying that this is like, this is the model that's going to be secure the economic stability of the region, but it's actually something that is contributing to the communities. And about two, three years ago, we were on a field tour out in the um, upper salmon. We were driving around some random watershed, and Boyd Foster's coming by in his semi-truck. He's got an he's excavator loaded up on it. He just got done finishing a project. And I was with a couple government people. He gets out of the car, we go up and greet him, and he, hug, he grabs this one dude and hugs him. He's like, man, I'm so happy to see you. This is awesome. He was involved in this project. They just, he was really proud of his work. This guy has taken ownership. He went from somebody who's like, I'm just going to build a road, or I'm going to just dig some dirt, and we're going to just do it. We're, we'll do that really well. To now he like, wants to be an artist restoration excavator. Like, he is one of our go-to guys when we do restoration projects, and he's in very high demand. And he's kind of made this whole switch from these fish are, hmm, I, I, I would fish for them. They're, I live in Salmon's or I live in the area, so I kind of know them. To, this is something I believe in. I want to see these things come back. And he's actually building his business up around it. Next story I want to show, in particular in today's world, this is probably why I wanted to talk about it. The person on the far left, a guy by the name of Jude Trapani, he is, at the time, was a, a BLM um, biologist. Right now, in today's world, the bureaucrat's never a good word. And the BLM sometimes has a bad name. He now works for the Bureau of Reclamation. But what people fail to realize is that there are a lot of people that work in these agencies that play a very critical role in making these issues either go away, if that's your perspective, or they actually help us improve how we're trying to get there. So I wanted to put a plug in there for government people, because frankly, they do do good. It's not just people who sit around in a desk. I'm, there's some that do, I'm not going to debate that, but you can go to any place of business and find the person playing solitaire on their computer. It's not just government employees. But I will say that somebody like Jude, who has a passion for salmon and steelhead and cares, and has carried that throughout his career, no matter he's been at the BLM, the Bureau of Reclamation, no matter what job he's been in, he has been connected to this world, and in fact, a leader in this world, and helping move us to a new consciousness about how we're trying to think about salmon and steelhead, how that integrates into our daily lives, how we are trying to restore this fishery, and why the, the, the kinds of projects we do actually do show some signs that we can recover the fish, in spite of some of the big challenges we might face. And when done in concert with addressing some of those big challenges, such as the hydro system, 
we can couple these two things together to actually get there over time. So as folks like Jude that works at an agency, they're, they're all over the place. But I wanted to tell the story because I think it's really important that we realize that it doesn't just hinge on some conservation organization or some rancher. It hinges on a lot of people. The last story I want to say is about the uh, Shoshone-Bannock tribe. This is a guy named Lytle Denny. Um, Lyle Denny is a fish biologist. He's a uh, Shoshone-Bannock tribal member. And he is very active in the Yankee Fork watershed. The Yankee Fork watershed is a place where a mine operation essentially went through the middle of the, of the basin and straightened it, made these huge rock piles, essentially obliterated the watershed. It was the choice we made at the time. But now we're in the process of trying to re-piece that whole watershed back together again. And a person like Lytle Denny, he talked to our, we have a group of people that work uh, together up there, partners from agencies, nonprofits, and community members. He spoke to us at one of our annual uh, get-togethers. And the story that he talked about was fishing. He took his son out fishing. And they went to the East Fork of the Salmon. And he was going to show his son how the tribe, how they fish, which is an interesting uh, thing to watch if you ever get a chance. It's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty crazy, actually. Um, he goes up the East Fork, and he's excited. They're, they're, they're going through their rituals, and they get up there, and they don't see a thing. And Lytle, the, the, the way he told the story, you could just see in his eyes and, and in his voice He's going to restore these fish over his dead body. He is going to restore these fish. And he, in essence, said it that way. It, it, he is somebody who, at a very guttural level, is committed to ensuring that not only his kids, but his kids' kids have this resource available to him. The reason I wanted to talk about these four stories is they represent different pieces of the puzzle. And every one of these is helping us to improve the overall numbers that I was showing you earlier. In a lot of ways, we talk about salmon and steelhead from a numbers perspective, but it's the people who are actually engaged in the work, whether you're in Idaho, in the Clearwater Basin, or at some other place along the system. This is happening over and over across the Columbia Basin. And it's because of these efforts that I think that we're going to be able to get our way toward recovery at some point. I, I like to think I'm going to see it as far as getting to our real objectives, which would be probably four times where we are right now from the numbers that I just gave you earlier. Last thing I want to talk about is over the past 15 years, the work in the Upper Salmon, just to give you a sense of this one place, what we've been able to accomplish in the past 15 years, the Nature Conservancy, our partners from Trout Unlimited, agency people, Idaho Department of Fish and Game, the local land trust, the Limhigh Regional Land Trust up there. We've protected more now. This is, this is actually, a, this, these numbers are a year old. It's over 30,000 acres of land. And, and David mentioned nicely that I facilitated. It was, I mean, I was involved, yes. But it takes like a lot of people to pull all these deals together. Um, Oh, it's over 30,000 acres of land protected, which represents some of the best spawning habitat we have in, in, in the basin, uh, some of the most important rearing habitat. Um, 494 miles of river habitat restored, including the Yankee Fork. I showed you a picture of earlier. Boyd Foster's been involved in a lot of those miles. Um, fish greens installed. 
Fish screens basically keep fish from going down a ditch. It's pretty simple. And that evidently protects a lot of juvenile fish from dying. Um, I can't quite see that. But we restored roughly 60, 60 CFS of water to our rivers and streams and the upper salmon. And again, this is a snapshot of one place. This is happening on a scale across the entire Columbia Basin. And we're trying to grow this. What we do in the upper salmon, the model that we have in the upper salmon, we're trying to expand this into other parts of our own state, the Clearwater, other parts of the Snake River system. Our Snake River stock, if you will, includes some tributaries in Oregon. So the work that we do here has ripple effects beyond um, our own state. And what I'll end on is what you can do. I think there's an important role for the people of our country to think about salmon and steelhead. I think about the Dust Bowl. We, who would have thought we could have recovered from the Dust Bowl? I watched the document, Ken Burns documentary. Holy mackerel, that was, if you haven't seen that, it's worth watching, because I, I mean, I've read about it, like when you see some of the imagery of it, you just think, how do you recover from something like that? You recover from it because people, a country gets behind it. A region gets behind it. Salmon and steelhead are gonna get recovered because a region gets behind it. Salmon and steelhead get recovered because we as Idahoans take it upon ourselves to learn about it, to talk to our representatives about it. And I'm not saying you have to be like, go chain yourself to some tree up there or anything like that. This is just engagement, understanding the issues. Issues aren't always black and white. It, does, it takes dialogue, it takes understanding. And the other thing I would say is a shameless plug, support conservation organizations. It does, we are making it, we are adding value to what's happening. Government agencies are adding value. Ranching communities adding value. Contractors are adding value. It's the whole thing that really is gonna bring us back to um, what these fish once were in our state. Thank you very much. You are listening to the City Club of Idaho Falls rebroadcast on KISU FM radio. Tonight's forum, titled Salmon and Steelhead, Lost Cause or Reason for Hope, given by Mark Davidson, Director of Conservation Initiatives for the National Conservancy on June 7th. Mr. Mark Davidson did use slides during this presentation and they are available on our website at kisu.org. Just look for our homepage post. The question and answer period continues next. Well, Mark, thanks very much. That was illuminating and entertaining. Uh, Wonderfully done. Thank you very much. And we've got some really good questions for you as well. Great. Um, let's, let's start with where you just left off and ask, uh, ask a broad question, giving you a chance to expand. What might we do as individuals to help promote and protect salmon, steelhead recovery, uh, besides giving money to yeah. the Nature Conservancy? <laughs> Uh, and there isn't anything else you can do. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. That was the a more nice better. program. Thank you. Uh, you can give it to we... others, too. I'm okay with that. Uh, that's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering, and because uh, one of your audience members wonders about just how busy the rivers have become, and should there be other kinds of restrictions imposed in some way to facilitate uh, yep. the recovery? So something I think you can do, and this kind of falls in line of educating yourself. There's the fishing game um, manages our sport fishery. So if you're concerned about what are the regulations around fishing, and I, this is actually a pretty hot topic right now. A good friend of mine, uh, Jerry and Terry Myers from up in uh, near Shoup, Idaho, they're rabid steelhead anglers. And um, this season, 
because the steelhead runs have been so poor. Um, they've kind of made it their own campaign to put some pressure on the fishing game to consider shutting down the season, to give fish a break. I'm not saying that has to be the actual what ends up happening, but I do think that the, in the fishing game, people that I work with, they appreciate the, I mean, you know, they're not gonna take every comment that you give them, but I think interacting with public processes is important. Um, whether it's regulation setting through the Idaho Fishing Game Commission, um, that's probably your best bet to, to, to look at how regulations are set. Um, paying attention, there's right now, the state of Idaho is in the throes of negotiating the next biological opinion on the hydro system, on the lower snake and, and in, into the Columbia. Um, there's going to be some, the environmental impact statement is going to come out, and there's a variety of ways you can track this, um, but there's going to be a public comment period on that. If you want to have a voice, weigh in on that. Like, it, it takes a little bit of work. Um, I'm, I'm happy to help you think about how you might frame comments. There's plenty of organizations that are tracking this. Idaho Rivers United, Idaho Conservation League, Trout Unlimited, just to name a few. Um, that's a lot, a lot of what they, uh, they do. So there's that, that process to get involved with. Um, and I think there's the volunteer options as far as like, I wanna go plant a tree or I wanna go work on a fence. We do tons of restoration work just right up the road, well, two and a half hours, um, where we need volunteers for fence projects. And well, the Snake River Cutthroat, Trout, uh, Trout Unlimited Snake River Cutthroat Chapter here in Idaho Falls, um, have actually built, I think, more fence than anybody in the upper, it's some crazy amount of miles of fence. That chapter, um, I can't think of the, uh, the contact, but you can find them online, I'm sure. They're very active in trying to find opportunities. Like one of the properties the Nature Conservancy bought um, up, in, up near Ledor, we did a project where we needed about, I can't, like six or seven miles of fence built. So the Trout Unlimited chapter partnered with the Shoshone-Bannock tribe, and they had this great like fence building day, and they ate rock chuck, and, or marmots, or whatever you want to call them. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that you, it, it's, sometimes it's not hard, it's not easy to find out where I as an individual can weigh in. But it's public process, and then some opportunities for direct engagement on the ground. Great, great, thank you very much. Uh, the topic of, of dam breaching comes up a lot. Yes. Could you help us un help us here understand uh, that process mm -hmm. and and why it appears to some members of the audience that there's an inordinate focus on dam breaching? And then there are a couple follow-up questions. Okay. Um, and this is the this is a really I'll do my best to make this as black and white as possible, but it's not a black and white answer. Um, the lower four snake dams, certainly when they went in, the first thing you have to remember, there are eight dams. It's not just the lower snake. There are eight dams that have to be navigated by these fish from the mouth of the Columbia to here. Somehow the four, the four Columbia dams, they, they fall in a different category because of the amount of electricity they produce for the Northwest. The four lower snake dams are in a bit of different. They, they, they're mostly, frankly, they're mostly about transport at this point. They do generate some electricity, but not much. They would argue that. Um, let me think how I want to answer this. The 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 way that, that I look at look at it, and the way that our organization generally looks at it, 
you can't just do one thing to restore salmon and steelhead. So the way, the way that we have tried to work is, let me say one other thing real quick. The hydro system, the four lower dams in particular, since about the mid, after listing in 1994-95, Bonneville Power Administration, Army Corps of Engineers, started pumping millions and millions, tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars into improving the passage system. Meaning, and it's mostly about the juvenile fish, the guys that are like six, seven inches or less. They're going out to the ocean, they swim back, they don't swim, they, they go backwards out to the ocean. They're the ones who get, that's where the hang up lies. The adult fish seem to be able to pass generally through the, through the hydro system. Um, the improvements on the dams have been made for the juvenile fish to get out. There's been so much improvement that actually the mortality at the dam itself is not as high as it used to be. In fact, the, the mortality at the dams themselves is relatively low. It's the predation, the warm water, it's these other things that really affect it. So there's, that's kind of an issue that needs to be dealt with, and that's more about management. And the, the agencies that manage the hydro system, it, it is it is a really, um, it's an intense science. It's, it's, there's flaws, and I'm not going to say they're fine to stay in or fine to go. There's a lot of strong arguments on either side. But what I do, what I do believe is that if we just, we can't just say, let's breach the dams, or let's leave the dams in and, and expect to get salmon and steelhead recovery back. For us, we think it's really important to also focus on tributary habitat. So there's this kind of blend of work that needs to occur between the two things. If you're going to really address the dam argument, you can't do that without addressing the habitat argument and the tributary system. And that's where we put a lot of our emphasis. The sense I got from the question you just asked was that, that it, are the dams okay maybe is kind of how I interpret it. And I'm not sure that was the intent of the question. Dams are not, I, I mean, they're not, they're, they're your blockage. I'm not going to sit here and say that they should stay in because I, I don't think that they're ultimately, take the, even take the fish out of the, out of the equation, the economics of the four dams in the Lower Snake River, that question will take care of itself no matter how hard an environmental group might fight it. The, the economics just aren't there for it. Power energy generation has changed. Bonneville Power Administration, Northwest Power Planning, uh, Northwest Power and Conservation Act, all these things are a little outdated. We're going to have to really look at this right around 2024 when some of these contracts come due. That's going to change the whole dynamic of this question. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And, and that's one of the follow-up questions. Uh, would, uh, is, breaching a, is dam breaching going to lead? Uh, what's the impact of dam breaching on hydropower? Is that going to push us to other kinds of um, uh, other forms of generating? Uh, yeah, the other energy. forms of generation are already happening. So when we, right now, the United States is an um, energy independent country. Um, the g gas, natural gas, when that came online, we have wind, we have solar, we have a lot more different kinds of energy sources. The four dams on the Snake River, and I, I want to make another clarification. The question is not, I, I think it's false claim to say, well, the one side is going to say, well, if you, you guys start breaching these dams, then every dam is on the table. I, I don't think that's the question. Like the societal question is, do these dams serve a function for our society? If not, then we need to address it. If they don't, 
then we need to also address it, but we need to consider some of these other ramifications of keeping them in. We don't tend to have that conversation. There's not a lot of space for that conversation. And I think that as we move forward with new energy sources coming on, the equation is going to change, the dialogue is going to change, and I think as the consciousness around salmon and steelhead changes, um, because these fish do represent a lot, even for people who might not realize it, like I grew up, where I grew up, I know a lot of steelhead fishermen and their farmers, and my own father would say, any drop going to the ocean is wasted water. I mean, I grew up my whole life hearing that. Um, and my, my thinking has changed a little bit the older I've gotten and the more independent I've gotten in my thinking. Um, my dad and I still debate this issue. But it's not, that's not the question I don't think anymore. I think the question is more, how do we balance all these different pressures we need from our, for our needs, for the resource needs? They're not simple questions. They require patience, dialogue, et cetera. I don't know if I answered that question specifically, but. It was a great answer and very thorough. Thank you. So, so here's a follow-up of sorts. When you consider all the different levels of government, responsible or could or government governments that could be responsible for restoring mm -hmm. uh, salmon and, and steelhead which level of government do you think should be most responsible are we talking about counties are we talking about the state the federal government and what roles would you assign not just in with respect to fish but maybe pheasant and the soil here's a chance yep. to wax philosophical yeah well, this is funny <laughs> this question came up Literally, just yesterday, um, I worked closely with some of the folks that work at Office of Species Conservation for the state of Idaho, governor's office. Um, this one individual is responsible for, he's half of the team that is involved in the negotiations of the environmental impact, station, uh, environmental impact statement for the renewal of the biological opinion on the hydro system. And we were talking about a version of this question. And he said, if we really want to talk about who's responsible, maybe we need to start looking at other countries. Our fish, Idaho fish, go out into the, out into the Pacific Ocean, and their journey from there takes them across the Pacific Ocean, near Japan, Russia, and then back. During that journey, they're getting harvested by, they're in international waters. They're getting harvested by everybody, I was gonna say everybody and their dog, but everybody. All these countries are harvesting these fish. And our fish are taking, they're, hit, they're getting hit pretty hard. And sometimes what happens is, is our fish are making their way back to the Columbia. You have some of these international, these foreign countries that park their vessels in the international waters and they're catching Columbia River fish as they're coming back. So one argument could be, maybe it's the United Nations. I don't know who that is, but there needs to be some dialogue. I mean, that was something that really struck me yesterday. So unfortunately for you, I had that in my head from yesterday. Otherwise, I would have said, it's, not, it's hard to pin it on any one agency. I think every step of government has a role to play, from county, frankly, even the city in some instances. Um, but from county, state, federal, it's a matter of alignment between the different agencies. Because the, the, at the federal level, you have two kinds of agency, agency interactions. You have regulatory agencies, which is NOAA Fisheries and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And then you have action agencies, which would be the Corps of Engineers, the Bureau of Reclamation, who like are doing things. 
So you, you kind of have to get those two things to align, and then you then have to get the next pieces to align. So it's unfortunately not a who's the responsible party. It's kind of all of us. Mm -hmm. And I like that international dimension. So Russian collusion. Right. 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 Good. Yep. That's a Russian collusion. You can do an investigation on that. Another subject for another time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, Mark, could you talk a little bit about those fish that are returning? Some wonder, for example, do we have any fish returning to the Redfish Lake? Mm -hmm. And then the larger problem, if we should lose a, a species, what's the impact of that loss? Um, so the sockeye salmon that come back, the number is 675. That's the average. That's how many come back to redfish. Those, we don't have any sockeye salmon that are, you know, historically they would have spawned in all of those lakes in the Sawtooth Valley, but they only, only go to redfish. I mean, at this point, we're, we're down to redfish lake. Um, so that's the only place they're going right now. What happens if you lose a species? The way I think about that is like, maybe not much. You know, I mean, we've lost a lot of species. The, the question I always come up with is like, where, where do we want to draw the line? I mean, that's, that's really, I think, more the question. Because at some point, we're going to just keep like losing resources, losing species, but these species represent something more than themselves. And I just don't think you can break it down to. So if we lose this species, well, we'll be okay, right? Yeah, well, maybe. But like, until you reach some point where you've lost so many species, whether it's because of habitat degradation or whatever it might be, and you realize, like, like for me, I think about salmon and steelhead, it's, it's what they represent. Like, I love these places. And we as Idahoans, like, this is why we're here, in my opinion. And so if, you, if we're willing to let sockeye salmon go, Maybe you should move. <laughs> I like that. I can see that on a bumper sticker. I like that. Well, it's got real potential. It's good. Uh, Mark, I'm an you... Idaho native, so I'm very much. <laughs> Mark, could you comment a little bit, please, on the interaction between native fish and hatchery fish yeah. and the impact on the genetic pool? So the the hatchery thing is more of an issue with steelhead because. You know, you, steelhead are harder to manage from a hatchery perspective. They have more scapes, like uh, steelhead that don't necessarily make it. They're not as, um, what's the term? Um, um, they don't have as much loyalty to their spawning grounds. Steelhead kind of go any place where it's favorable, and Chinook salmon tend to go back to kind of where they always go. The hatchery influence on, as re, and so the, the, there's a little, the, the answer or an answer to that question is a little different for both species. Um, but the, the, it used to be throw as many fish in as you can. And that was, the supplement was going to, like, that's how we were going to keep our numbers up so we can meet all these different pressures. And they didn't think that much about genetics. Um, I'm, I'm kind of out of my realm of expertise here, but from what I understand and working with people from Fish and Game and different agencies, and, and what I've read and looked at on these different programs, they've really tried to take the hatchery management system and change it such that they're not, they're trying to reduce that hybrid, or not hybridization, that, that hatchery wild fish mixing. Um, it's not perfect, it's gotten a lot better, 
it's, it's still a challenge. I think you, you dilute the wild genetics. Some, some would argue that the wild fish we have coming back are not actually like true wild genetic stocks. We've altered these fisheries for so long that it's kind of hard to disentangle like what's really wild, what's really not. Um, there's debate about that. This is the challenge with salmon and still conservation, that you can debate the minutia of every part of this topic. But at a very general level, I would say less hatchery fish is better. Because what happens with the hatchery component, more than the genetic aspect at this point in time, would be my um, take on it, is that the sheer numbers of juvenile hatchery fish that we put on top of our wild fish outcompete our wild fish for resources. And so they then become the dominant fish occupying space, eating up the food, and essentially taking away from the wild, the wild fish's ability to survive. Uh, Mark, uh, how are we going to measure the success of recovery efforts? By sheer numbers? By numbers yeah. in streams? What, yeah. what would you say? Well, there's another topic that millions, tens of millions of dollars are spent on trying to answer this question. Um, if you look at it from the perspective of the recovery planning process and the biological opinion, it's kind of a numbers game. So the, the, the holy grail, if you will, is to figure out like what habitat actions that we take or what manipulations that we make to the dams or what, whatever action we take in any part of that equation, how many fish does that action equate to? Like that's, that's what all this stuff is trying to answer. So it kind of is a numbers game. And the metrics vary from, we're going to count the amount of pebbles in a stream so you can understand what the spawning habitat's like, to putting uh, pit tags, these readers, in these, uh, a little tracking device. <laughs> this is real black helicopter stuff. We put tags in like millions of fish every year before they go out to the ocean. And you can track, there's a website you can go to, and you can track an individual's fish's progress from when they come out of the, uh, when they come out of the Limhi River all the way to the Columbia River and their journey back. So that's one way that we're tracking this. Um, and that those numbers then you feed into different kinds of equations and models. And so the, the tracking game is really challenging. The, the easiest way for me to look at it is to go to a place Pacemaroy, East Fork, Lemhi, and this is what we're doing right now in the Upper Salmon, is trying to develop a tool that helps us track more accurately this habitat action, whether it's adding large wood and habitat complexity into a given reach of a river would equate to, or would, you, would, you would predict that there would be a response of some percent more of juvenile fish being able to occupy that space. And then you could take that percent and equate it to a number, and then that feeds into a broader set of metrics. We only have a couple of minutes left. So let me ask you quickly, and this is for the cattlemen okay. in the audience. All right. what, what changes should cattlemen make to try to better protect spawning grounds? Less grazing, less grazing near the banks, yeah. rivers, what would you say? Um, this has been an evol evolving issue. You, when we started, like when I first started working on these issues, it was like, well, I'll fence them, fence them out, fence out the cattle. That's going to be the answer. Well, once you fence out the cattle, then all of a sudden you got weed problems and you got whatever other issues going on, and ranchers don't like to have weeds on their property, and your, your fish are killing our areas because all these weeds are coming onto my property now. Um, they always call them our fish for some reason. 
Um, but I think that what ranchers can do, and this, is, this has been something I've learned the hard way in some respects, um, there's not any one thing a rancher can do, and I wish, I wish there was a simple answer. I could just say, do this, and you'll get it. It's really kind of comes down to, this is where it comes down to the ground game, and some, and like there's big prescriptions, like managed grazing, and, and intensive grazing, and moving your cattle, and, and just being more, frankly, just being more on top of what you're doing. You know, just turning them out, and letting them do whatever, doesn't, doesn't really work for your land, it doesn't really work for your livestock, your, your cattle don't do any better by doing that. So there's ways you can manage livestock. And frankly, like I'm not a fence guy. Like, I'm less fence the better. So what I've really tried to do when I work with ranchers is let's you tell me what, what works for you. Uh, this is what I want. So we start with what we think we want, and we just pose it as a question to the rancher. And the ranchers that I've known and worked with, they're pretty good at like, oh, that's what you want. I'll do this. What do you think? And we'll try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, we're going to change it. So it's really kind of like you start there. It's, there's no simple prescription. You tell me. And generally speaking, most of the ranchers I work with, even, though, even if they're quiet when I first meet them, and their hat's like this, they don't want to look at you, and then, then they, they tip that hat back and their eyes light up and they're in it. Wow. wow. That's kind of how it happens a lot of times. One last question, please. Mark, what would you say, uh, how, what would you say about the success of the restoration efforts uh, to the general environment? It's, I, of course, I'm going to say it's been great. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, I, in general, it has been great. It's been like you see response from other resident fish, like West Slope cutthroat trout, bull trout, um, resident rainbow trout, or red bands. These fish numbers are actually improving as well as we're doing all this other work. So um, the restoration work and the, and the piecing back of these watersheds, and again, it's not to say that like somehow these people, like oh, they, they did it, well, they did it, they killed it, they, want, they just went out there and killed it. it. It doesn't work that way. People just, it's like when I work in my yard, it's a, it's a haphazard landscape job. I just start here and I do something there and I go over there and I do something there and it looks like hell, but whatever, it's my yard. Um, I think that's, I'm not saying the ranchers' places look like hell, but I think that's kind of how we do it. Like we just kind of go from one thing to the next. Um, but as we think about how to untangle all of that and bring new energy and new ideas and new information to the table, that's not only helping the fisheries, it's helping people's ranches be more productive. It's helping upland species do better because riparian corridors are improving. More things are able to move around more freely. It benefits not just fisheries, it benefits the watershed as a whole. Yeah, great. Mark, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's very informative, very interesting, and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you. And we'll have a City Club coffee cup Excellent. to reward you for your time here. Let's give him a nice round of applause. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, please let me remind you that on July 11, we'll have our annual lecture, this year presented by the very distinguished Yale historian, Joanne Freeman, the nation's leading Alexander Hamilton scholar, who will be talking about Alexander Hamilton, the man, the myth, the musical. And it was her scholarship that informed the writing and shaping of the play that some of you may have seen. Thanks again, Mark. 
Audio for tonight's Idaho Falls City Club broadcast is available at ifcityclub.com or on our website at kisu.org, where you can also find slides used during this presentation. Coming up next hour, it's Matt's Movie Tracks at 8 o'clock here on KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls, Rexburg.